the American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 11, Mexico in the Age of Santa Ana. Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Morswick. Hello, friends and listeners. This is episode 11. Um, Before we get started, let me just remind you that if you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, um, you can feel free to email me. The email is sean at the American History Podcast. You can also email my personal email, which is seanworswick at mac.com. And you can find me on Twitter at AmericanHisCast. So please feel free to interact with me there if you've got a question or um, you just want to say hi. um, That's always appreciated. Um, if you think I'm a horrible person, you can feel free to email me as well. I uh, have a pretty thick skin, so don't worry about that. All right. Um, so last time we examined Mexico and its war for independence. We saw the Spanish colony of New Spain become independent, and we ended with Agustin de Iturbide, crowned emperor. I hope you enjoyed. You all enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Um, Let me just remind you that Mexican history is not my specialty, so if there were any um, errors or if I brushed over any aspects of that history, please forgive me. Um, Today we continue looking at the early years of Mexico, specifically um, the end of Iturbide's reign um, and the rise of Santa Ana. So without further ado, let's get started. Now the first point, and probably the most important, is to understand what the situation was in Mexico at this point. Um, Last time I mentioned that obviously the Mexican independence movement was influenced uh, by other revolutions and secessionist movements in the Atlantic world, specifically the American War for Independence, um, the French and the Haitian revolutions. Now here I just want to stop for a second. The American independence movement or the War for Independence was not a revolution. Okay, specifically a revolution or technically a revolution is when you march on the seat of government and you attempt to overthrow that government and change it. The Americans were not trying to do that. They were not trying to march on London and change the government in London. What they were trying to do instead was secede from the British Empire. Okay, And so it is not technically a revolution. It is an independence movement or a secessionist movement. Now, here in the United States, the word secession, thanks to the Civil War, has negative connotations. But at the end of the day, that's what the American uh, War for Independence was. Okay, sorry for that little uh, diversion. The Mexican independence movement or revolution was also heavily influenced by the Napoleonic Wars. However, make no mistake, this was not a liberal revolution at least not in the sense that the French Revolution was a liberal revolution, which we could make arguments that it was something else, but this isn't the French history podcast, so we're not going to go there. Um, And it was not liberal in the the same way that the American independence movements were or was. Now, the ideals of the Enlightenment, while not unknown in Mexico, had not penetrated to the same extent that they had in North America and in France. 
Um, Iturbide, allied with the army, essentially was no liberal. Now, the newly independent empire is going to face se- or faced several problems. Okay, first was its size. It encompassed the former viceroyalty of New Spain, which meant the country stretched from Central America in the south to California and the southwestern United States in the north. While there were problems of loyalty in Central America, the true problem area was along the northern frontier. The United States had started to eye the southwest and California, while at the same time, Mexico was hoping to secure official American recognition of its independence from Spain. No doubt, harmonious relations with its expansionist neighbor would be vital to Mexican political and economic security. Further, Iturbide wished to secure a loan from the United States for about $10 million to help the new government meet its obligations. But this was problematic, as the United States, under President Monroe, was committed to seeing Republican governments established in the former territories of the Spanish Empire. Even more problematic was the fact that the border between the two countries had never been properly demarcated. So you've got all of these issues. But, of course, the biggest one is the fact that the United States is looking kind of hungrily at these northern provinces of Mexico. Now, as we mentioned in Episode 10, the Americans had already become obsessed with the Rio Grande as the border of Texas. Now... This is interesting as the borders of Texas had never been fixed, a situation which was fairly typical of empires at this time and in this area, but something that nation-states really dislike. Um, Nation-states really want their borders demarcated and well-defined. Having said that, if you had to pick a line, history is on the side of the Rio Nueces, the river north of the, the Rio Grande being the river, the border. Why? Because settlements on both sides of the Rio Grande answered to provincial governments further south. Settlements along the Nueces, and they were on the south side, were governed out of San Antonio. Now, the, the Rio Grande had actually had different names at different times, depending on who you asked, all of which helped to add to confusion. The river's first appears... Uh, I'm sorry, the river first appears in the historical record as the Rio de las Palmas, or the River of Palms, in 1519. Later, it was referred to as the Rio de Nuestra Señora, the River of Our Lady, in this case, Mother of God. Um, Now, when the the first Spanish explorers entered New Mexico, they named the river there the Rio Bravo del Norte, or the Bold River of the North. And this was in the 1540s. It was sometimes shortened to Rio Bravo, or Rio del Norte, and then sometimes expanded to Rio del Norte y de Nuevo México. Um, Other names for the same river are Rio Grande, the Great River, and Rio Grande del Norte, the Great River of the North. Confused yet? Hopefully not. Hopefully you're still with me. Um, In New Spain, the river was most often referred to as Rio Bravo. Anglo politicians were only concerned with getting their hands on Texas, and floating their boats down that river, whatever you called it. They didn't care about the name so much. They just wanted the land, at least on the north side. Now, as we mentioned in the first episode on Andrew Jackson, after he invaded Spanish Florida in 1819, Spain realized that it could no longer hold on to that territory and agreed to cede it to the United States, 
as long as the United States gave up its claims to Texas. In the Adams-Onis Treaty, the Spanish were hoping to settle the border dispute once and for all and gain a buffer between their territory and the ever-growing and expansionist United States. Now, the U.S. accepted the deal, and the Spanish hoped that this would divert um, America's attention to the North and the West. At the same time, the Spanish government began to address its previous failures to establish colonies in Texas, where a sparse population was under attack by the Comanche Empire. A solution presented itself when a man named Moses Austin petitioned to allow him to bring 300 families to colonize the territory. And in 1821, the Spanish government approved the plan and at the same time opened Santa Fe to trade with the United States. Now, unbeknownst to the Spanish, they had just sown the seeds not only of their own destruction, but of future problems for Mexico. In 1822, delegates from the provinces gathered in Mexico City to debate the future of their new nation. At least one historian of this period, a gentleman named Lucas Alamán, argues that the colonial period should have been a formative one, as it had been for the United States. Further, he argues that the decade of bloodshed which preceded independence was not only unnecessary, but detrimental to the future of the country. To continue the comparison, while the United States had several decades of peace and prosperity as members of the British Empire, during which time they were able to learn how to govern themselves, Mexico had no such period. Instead of spending the decade before independence preparing for such an eventuality, Mexico's would-be leaders spent their time, quote, destroying all that formerly existed, end quote, setting itself down the road to decades of chaos. Now, a gentleman named Joel Poinsett, and he's the guy that the plant Poinsett is named after, um, he's an American who was sent by the U.S. government to act as its representative. He was unimpressed with Iturbide. He said the emperor was distinguished only for his immorality and his lack of talent. He also said the emperor lacked scruples when it came to achieving his goals. Not the most ringing endorsement. I would caution you about Poinsett. Um, he is biased, and we'll discuss some of his problems in a few minutes. Um, but he was an observer, and no matter how biased he might have been, one imagines that had Iturbide been a man of the caliber of, say, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, uh, he might have been a little more positive. But be that as it may, out of this period, two traditions are established in Mexican history. The first being the practice of the cadillos serving their own interests instead of those of the nation. The second was the doubtful attitude of the United States towards Mexico, expressed by a man whom many thought was an expert on the subject, but that appears to be in doubt as well, as you're going to see momentarily. Okay. Um, I should mention the negativity was essentially a two-way street. Mexicans at the time of independence began calling themselves Americanos to distinguish themselves from the Spanish. Now, at the same time, they resented the fact that the people of the United States claimed the label American as their own. In Latin America, those in the north were known as Anglo-Americanos, Norte-Americanos, Anglo-Sajones, um, which is Anglo-Saxon, or disparagingly referred to as Yankees or Gringos. Now, Iturbide himself wanted relations with the United States to be positive, and he hoped not only um, to gain diplomatic recognition, but commercial treaties and the settlement of the boundary dispute, as well as a loan, as we said earlier. 
Now, President James Monroe did extend recognition to all of the new American nations in an effort to promote Republican governments. At the same time, the elevation of Iturbide to the title of emperor was discouraging, although Monroe and others felt this experiment with monarchy would not last long. Interestingly, the Mexican minister to the United States, José Manuel Bermúdez Sosoya, also uh, told, or I should say he didn't also, but he told Iturbide, they will be our enemies. For the time being, these two nations were going to have to live together. They shared a border, which was at this point between Louisiana on the one side and Texas and New Mexico on the other side. Further, the scarcity of settlements in Mexican territory north of Chihuahua fed the narrative of a power vacuum simply waiting to be filled. While there were presidios, um, they were few and far between. They were undermanned and are often poorly manned with convicts and neglected at best. The pattern that was emerging in Mexico was one in which the generals kept their troops near Mexico City rather than guarding the frontier as they were looking for any opportunity they could gain to seize power. Having said that, the first wound to the empire came not from the north, but from the south, when Central American provinces assembled a congress in late 1821 and then in March of 1823 seceded. By this point, Iturbide was out of the picture, having presided over his empire for less than a year. Instead of ruling over his empire, he spent his time dreaming up honors for himself and adorning his uniform with gaudy decorations. To fund his penchant for fancy receptions and festivals, he sold commissions in the army. His one legacy, and it's not one worth bragging about, was the emasculation of the Mexican Congress. Thus, from this point forward, Mexican politics would be dominated by a succession succession of power-hungry men intent on enriching themselves at the expense of the Mexican people. Eventually, Iturbide was brought down by his one-time aide, Santa Ana. Accused of plotting with the Spaniards to bring down the emperor, the wily general observed the fact, observing the fact that several provinces had broken off, decided it was time for Mexico to adopt a federal system which would disperse power amongst the various states, and declared himself a Republican, who was opposed to the tyranny of the emperor. Now, this would be the first of many shifts in Santa Ana's political beliefs. Um, he got the generals marching against him to proclaim the Plan de Casamata, which called for the constitution to uh, our new constitution founded on federal principles. It worked. Iturbide abdicated on March 19, 1823, as the entire army turned against him. A call then went out for a constitutional convention. Thus begins what some refer to as the Age of Santa Ana. This turbulent period would extend over the next three decades. Santa Ana, referred to by his supporters as the defender of the homeland and the intrepid son of Mars, was called by his his detractors traitor to the homeland. Now, these people often used adjectives such as devious, overambitious, and corrupt when talking about the leader. Simon Bolivar, the leader of South American independence, referred to him as the most perverse of mortals, while Iturbide said he was a volcanic genius. So who exactly was this man? Born in Veracruz in 1794, he was the son of a Spanish army officer who was always in debt thanks to his love for gambling and a criollo mother. Gambling and theatrical talent seems to have been a family trait. Whatever you say about him, Santana was, at the end of the day, an enigmatic and controversial figure, so influential on Mexican history that historians named the first half of the 19th century in Mexican history the Age of Santa Ana. 
The problem with Santa Ana appears to be that while he wanted to be a leader, he lacked the patience and purpose that leaders need. Instead, he was more interested in gambling, womanizing, making speeches, and cockfighting. President of Mexico a staggering 11 times, he had no fixed political principles. So just a moment ago when we noted that he had become a Republican, don't worry, he's going to switch back and forth. Um, one historian of Mexico, Justo Sierra, felt the man had just enough intelligence to be astute. He was vain, supposedly, and easy to flatter. So Santa Ana was a bundle of contradictions, and he's fascinated historians for two centuries. Unfortunately, in the United States, this fascinating character has been reduced to that of a buffoonish cartoon character in a uniform full of medals who acts as the villain in films about the fall of the Alamo. He was more than that, much more. He might have um, boyish charm and a flair for the dramatic, but at the same time, he also had a vicious, murderous streak that ran deep. Loved and hated, sometimes by the same people at the same time, he was exiled from Mexico as often as he was welcomed back. Now, the Mexico that Santa Ana came to rule over in the 1820s was ruled by widespread disorder, or as Mexican historian Justo Sierra notes, the nation after independence was characterized by anarchy. How chaotic was it? In the years between 1821 and 1857, Mexico had at least 50 presidents. Governing principles swung between conservatism on the one hand and liberalism on the other. The government of Mexico wasn't an institution to be used as a means for governing. Instead, it was something to be seized and exploited. Now, the cities of Mexico, including the capital, were overrun by criminal gangs and the countryside ruled by bandits. Violence ruled the land. Travelers would often be robbed three or four times just making the trip from Veracruz to Mexico City. And one foreign diplomat said the country suffered from a pestilence of robbers. The major problem with Mexican politics was the fact that there was no tradition of a peaceful transfer of political power. In the United States, that tradition was established when George Washington handed over the reins of the presidency to John Adams and reinforced when Adams handed the office over to his political enemy at the time, Thomas Jefferson. In Mexico, power was transferred via coup d'etat, most often characterized by a barracks revolt. Whereas American revolutionaries fought against governments, Mexicans fought to take over the government and then exploit it. Now, finally, two general political tendencies emerged right now, at this time in Mexico. The first was conservatives, who wanted to mix rational conservatism with material progress. The second was the liberal tradition, and they wanted to build a Mexican identity out of an idealized Aztec past. To do this, they constructed a mythical history, one which said all Mexicans were heir to this ancient past. So while the Americans debated political theories and principles, at the same time, they were building a workable government devised to work into the future. In Mexico, their counterparts instead fell into a war over foundational myths, and they failed to bother with building a nation governed by a workable government. Okay, that's it for this episode. I think you've got a good foundation now for um, Mexico and the problems that are going on during um, not just the war for the, between the Mexicans and the United States over Texas that's, uh, that is the central idea of this whole series, um, but you've got kind of a context now of what Mexico had been suffered, suffering through 
at least since 1810. Um, In episode 12, we're going to venture north into Texas, a land which will play an important role in the narrative going forward, to say the least. As always, again, please feel free to contact me. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at AmericanHisCast. Visit the website. You can sign up for our email updates as well. You can see some of the sources that we're using to make this season um, if you're interested in reading further. So until next time, have a great day.